Hi everybody, Jimmy Young. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're going to have our broadcast partners come to this broadcast table so that we can discuss current events in light of biblical prophecy. By the way, that's the banner over my website, prophecytoday.com. Ken Timmerman standing by. We'll have to find out where in the world is Ken. And then we go to David Dolan. He has a Middle East news update. With Ken, I'll talk about the appointment of John Bolton as the National Security Advisor. I'll deal with that same issue with David Dolan. How does that relate to the Jewish state of Israel? Winky Madad, we're going to discuss the election of Vladimir Putin and the Jews in Russia, but also the number of Russian Jews, over 1.5 million of them in Israel. We'll get to that in a moment. John Rood is going to come along, give us reactions to the election of Vladimir Putin as it relates to the European Union. And Jim and Rick, they're in Turkey. We'll talk to them. I believe they're in Ephesus. We'll check them out and find out how the tour is going, having finished up in Israel, now in Turkey, on their way to Rome. And David James and I will discuss the abortion issue, a subject that is at the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., as it relates to the state of Israel. This will be the agenda for our broadcast partners. Keep the dial set right where it is. You need to understand what they have to tell us so we can understand the time according to God's plan dictated to us in the Word of God as to when the next event, the rapture of the church, will take place. Well, let's go to Ken Timmerman now, normally in Washington, D.C., on the catbird seat, but someplace in Europe. Ken, actually, where are you right now? Well, I'm in Sweden, Jimmy, on a a family visit for the time being, but we'll be hopefully visiting uh, one of the churches uh, of listeners to this program on Palm Sunday or Easter. Well, that's going to be great. So you'll be there a couple of weeks. That's neat. And give our greetings to that church. I know you've reported on that before. Talk to me about the unbelievable appointment of John Bolton as the National Security Advisor. That happened last Thursday. I would like your understanding, first of all, what you think about it. And then I'll just give you some uh, quick names of nations and some staccato answers as to how Bolton's appointment will relate to that. What about the fact that the president removed General McMaster, replacing him with John Bolton? Answered prayers. I think that's the quickest way to put it. This is an appointment which is momentous. Uh, John Bolton is in sync with the president's thinking on most things. H.R. McMaster was not. Uh, McMaster was a status quo strategist uh, and, by the way, a failed military leader. He has been widely praised for his management of the battle in Tel Afar in Iraq in 2003. But in fact, he lost 150 men in that battle because he rushed into battle without listening to uh, intelligence reports on the ground and had to get bailed out by special operations forces. So even on the military side, McMaster was not a brilliant tactician and he was a worst strategist. John Bolton is somebody whose vision of the world coincides with the president. He is a uh, change agent. He's somebody who's not a status quo thinker. He's also somebody who believes in putting America first. You know, John and I were co-nominated 
for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2006 by the former deputy prime minister of Sweden, precisely because of our work on Iran. Uh, John is deeply interested in Iran. He understands that the Iranian regime is a strategic threat, not just to our ally Israel, not just to our allies in the Arab world, but to us as well. Remember when they gather these huge crowds in Tehran and other cities uh, and they chant death to America, they call us the great Satan and Israel is the little Satan. We need to remember that uh, in the eyes of the Islamist state of Iran leadership, we are the great Satan. And that is something that John understands very, very well. I think you will see dramatic changes to our policy towards Iran. Uh, it's time to take the gloves off. I've been saying this for a long time. And I know John believes this as well. And when I say take the gloves off, I don't mean sending in troops or dropping bombs. I mean doing the thing that we actually do best as the United States of America, and that is exporting our values and helping the people who, who believe in those values, who share those values, helping the people of Iran to achieve freedom from this tyrannical imposed regime. Yes, and since you have a relationship with John Bolton from the past, uh, let's talk about a couple of other very important issues and nations that he may have to deal with as he advises the president. What about, and make these distinct and quick if we can so we can get to other issues, what about Russia? Well, uh, I think John is a realist towards Russia. Uh, he realizes that uh, uh, Russia does not have to be an enemy in everything. He understands there's a strategic competition there. Uh, but we can also cooperate Russia where, where possible, for example, in fighting ISIS. And, and that's what President Trump has wanted to do. So we don't always have to be an enemy. We have to understand that Russia does bad things. Yeah, they they you know, carry out disinformation operations and active measures. They get engaged in our elections. But, you know, we can deal with that. We are a mature power. We know how to deal with that. Let's be realistic. And he will be. And Russia is in Iran both, as you've just been talking about these two nations in Syria. So how will he advise the president on Syria? Well, I think there uh, the the goal of the United States uh, is twofold. Number one, to defeat the Islamic State, uh, in other words, to, to get this jihadi stronghold uh, out of Syria, out of Iraq, out of any geographical base that it might have. So that's the first goal. The second goal, and it's just as important now, is to get Iran out of Syria, because Iran is now using Syria as a forward base to position itself and its military forces against Israel. And they've made that very, very clear. We've talked about that many times uh, on, on, on this program. So those are the two things that I think that John Bolton is going to help the president to refocus on. I expect also that there will be increasing support for the Kurds in, in uh, Syria. Right now, you know, the past month, uh, Turkey has been waging war on the Kurds. I just met recently, to three days ago in Washington, with one of the Kurdish leaders uh, and he told me that the Turks have lost over a thousand soldiers hmm. uh, in this battle. The Kurds have also lost several hundred, but they've they've taken a uh, you know they've they've uh, they've done it at a price. Uh, so I think there's going to be greater support from the United States to the Kurds as well, and it's fitting and it's proper because the Kurds are the only force in the Middle East uh, besides Israel, of course, and maybe now Saudi Arabia, but they are the only force that we can rely on to be secular and to be anti-Islamist. Uh, in, in their core. 
And then when we see all of those things develop, Israel's going to be very pleased with this new appointment, don't you think? Oh, I think so. John Bolton is well known to the Israeli leadership. Uh, uh, They've known him for decades, and uh, he has always been a friend of Israel. And North Korea, we have got to bring them to the table. How's he going to deal with North Korea? Well, John signaled his approach uh, just a couple days ago on Fox News, and I can't imagine him saying anything different to the president than what he said in public. And he said, if this summit between President Trump and uh, Rocket, little Rocket Man uh, does <laughs> not talk about denuclearization, it does not start to focus on denuclearization right away, he said, then we can all just go off and uh, go see to the tourist sites, <laughs> yeah, because that is the only subject to really talk about. Uh, John understands very well that we've wasted decades in previous administrations, Republican and and Democrat, uh, in talking to the North Koreans, sending these low-level diplomats to talk to the North Koreans. Remember, uh, when President Trump, uh, uh, just before he announced the summit meeting, uh, Rex Tillerson said, well, you know, no, we're not going to have a big meeting. It's going to be talks about talks, and we have to have all these preliminary talks. And Trump said, no, there's no reason for that. We've done that for three decades and it hasn't worked. We're going to cut to the chase. We're going to go to the top and see if there's a deal to be made. And I think John is right on the same uh, that he and the president are on the same wavelength. They're going to see if there's a deal to be made. And if there's not, they're out of there. Now, we have just been reporting that there has been an election in Russia that was last week. And, of course, Vladimir Putin re-elected for a six-year term. Looks like the Western demonization of Putin made him more popular in Russia and brought him to power. We were talking about John Bolton in Russia, but the fact is he Putin is in power. Well, that, that's right. And I think there's a lot of silliness uh, in the West about Putin. Um, uh, do the Russians have free democratic elections? Of course not. But nobody has any illusion about that. Uh, nevertheless... Uh, They are a nuclear state, but a nuclear state uh, with an extremely fragile economy. You know, there was a there was a joke uh, right after the fall of the Soviet Union. They said that, uh, you know, with Russia becoming uh, the Soviet Union becoming the Russian rump state, Russia was basically Sierra Leone with nuclear weapons. Uh, It hasn't changed all that much uh, since then. Russia has a weak economy based on oil and gas exports, based on military exports, uh, but they're their people are dying off, right? Their birth rate is, the country is, is shrinking in front of their eyes. And all they have is the military and their oil and gas industry. So I think the president's going to be um, uh, realistic towards him. And I think he will be dealing with Putin for quite some time because the Russian people uh, understand Putin is a strong man. He is their new czar. And uh, that befits their culture. Every one of the players we've been talking about on the world scene today are participants in the prophetic scenario that's found in Bible prophecy. That's why we bring Ken Timmerman to these microphones. We have to search for him. When we find him, he comes and knocks the ball out of the park for us each and every time. What an advantage we have with Ken Timmerman as one of our broadcast partners who knows the personalities, been into these locations and incidents, and can report giving us great information. Ken, thank you so very much. I guess we'll try to catch you in Sweden next week, but have a great time with your family. Thanks so much, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll get a Middle East news update from David Dolan. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. Uh, we're in the main studio for this radio broadcast that comes out weekly and goes not only across the United States but around the world. As promised, David Dolan's going to give us a Middle East news update in a moment. I want to remind you that I'm going to leave right after this broadcast. Judy and I will be headed up to Newburgh, Indiana, the Gateway Baptist Church. Pastor Morgan Flagler is the pastor who's going to invite all of those in that area to come join us for a three-day prophecy conference, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Love to have you come over to Newburgh, Indiana, and join us at the Gateway Baptist Church. On Sunday, we're going to have uh, two services, 1045 and 530, but a Q&A at 430 in the afternoon. And then Monday, Tuesday, we're going to be having the regular teaching service at 630, 530, a prophecy Q&A. So come along, study the prophetic word of God at a very important time in our history as we study it there at the Gateway Baptist Church in Newburgh, Indiana. David, sad news. I know that you have been asking us to pray for you. I think we've mentioned it on the broadcast, but your brother went to be with the Lord yesterday. Is that correct? It is, Jimmy, a late Thursday evening. And his son, Ryan, is a missionary in Haiti and his wife. And I think I talked to you a little bit about Haiti. I went down there and spent Thanksgiving with them a year ago. And of course, we're all real sad to see uh, his father go, and my oldest brother, he was a, a great man and loved the Lord, and so 
so we're we're going to be celebrating his life. He lived very large, and the problem has been finding a big enough venue, Jimmy. He ran a Boise Cascade plant in Seattle with hundreds of employees, and we know that at least a 1,000 people are planning to come, so they're having to rent out, I think, a, a high school gym uh, for the service. So that will be a celebration, though, and, of course, the sad uh, passing uh, for us, but uh, he's with the Lord. Yes, amen, and praise the Lord for that. Well, we'll be praying for you as you put all those arrangements together. Hate to go now into hard news that you need to help us understand, but uh, that's why I have you on the radio, so let's get at it. This last Thursday, President Trump appointed a man named John Bolton as his new national security advisor, replacing General McMaster. Now, John Bolton has a very interesting relationship with Israel, a very favorable of the Jewish state, does he not? And this could help as the Trump administration moves ahead. Yes, Jimmy, he was viewed in Israel when he was the U.N. ambassador as one of the most uh, pro-Israel American ambassadors ever. They're glad to see that also again in Nikki Haley, the current ambassador. But John Bolton has a great reputation with Israel. And, of course, with the prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, he is in full agreement that the Iran deal was bad, that it was um, incomplete, that there needed to be the destruction of all the centrifuges, and they're not just there, but turning them off, which is what they did, and especially that the sunset clause, that this whole deal will go away after 15 years, I think it was. We've already had a couple, three years of that go by. And then they're open, once again, to have a full nuclear program. So Bolton heavily criticized President Obama and the other world leaders that negotiated this terrible deal, as he called it. Of course, Bibi Netanyahu said the very same thing. So they are on the same page, and of course it is being viewed in Washington as an indication that President Trump has decided that this next time he's supposed to approve this verification statement that Iran is complying with the deal, that he won't do so, and the deal will essentially collapse, or at least the U.S. will be free of it. How that affects, of course, uh, Hezbollah, Iranian forces in Syria, what Iran itself does, what Hamas does, how the Arab world reacts is anybody's guess. And, of course, it's a very tense time anyway with Israel's uh, 70th birthday coming up and the holidays, Easter and Passover coming up next week. So they'll be watching that. But Bolton considered a great friend of Israel, and they're happy to hear that he will be right at the ear of the most powerful a man on earth. Very, very important decision by the president as it relates to the future of the Jewish state of Israel. In addition to that, Angela Merkel, who is the chancellor of Germany, she made a very important statement this week as well, and she warned Israel that if indeed there is an end to the Iranian nuclear deal, that will lead to war. What do you think about that? Well, I think the war is inevitable uh, anyway, and basically that's what the Saudi crown prince said on 60 Minutes uh, last Sunday, that we're facing a showdown with Iran, and they're doing nefarious things, and he listed everything that the Israelis have been listing for some years, including Hezbollah and their uh, actions in Syria and Iran's actions there, and, and uh, particularly he spoke about the arming of the Houthi rebels in 
Yemen and how they fired, I didn't even realize, 68, I think he said, rockets into Saudi territory so far. So the war is going on, Jimmy, and I think President Trump, I think, has probably, frankly, made a decision to uh, have a military uh, bust up with Iran, uh, believing that's the only way to get the situation calm and to hope for any progress and peace, and frankly, the only way to stop the Syrian war. It's continuing apace, and it's becoming every, ever more dangerous every day. Turkey's becoming very bold in the north, invading territory, and the U.S. and Russian forces are facing each other right across a river in Syria. It's a very serious situation. So it seems to me he's made that decision, President Trump, with Prime Minister Netanyahu's acquiescence. I imagine that they discuss this in depth. And the two powers are preparing with Saudi Arabia and some other Arab allies to take on Iran, believing that's the only way forward since Iran is on the warpath and makes it very clear their leaders all the time. They're not going to stop until Israel is destroyed and the Saudi regime is overthrown. Very interesting announcement coming from the military establishment there in Israel. They lifted the censorship on a report that the Israeli Defense Force was the one responsible for taking out the Syrian nuclear reactor while they were constructing it back in 2007. Now, I'm just thinking maybe this is sending a signal to Iran. We're not afraid to go after your nuclear program with a preemptive strike. What are your thoughts about the release of the announcement and then how it may affect Iran. Well, Jimmy, I've been watching Israel TV. I do that every day anyway, their TV news, and I've been uh, reading some commentary online. And there's no question but that the Israelis are doing, uh, lifted this ban to send a message to Iran. That's the way everybody's interpreting it. And you may recall when I spoke to you the week that that uh, action happened in September of 2007 that I reported to you I was on the beach in Tel Aviv when all these Israeli Air Force jets suddenly appeared overhead heading to the north, heading to the north along the coast. Of course, they flew up over into Lebanon and then it went further north and then came down and hit the reactor uh, in that way, we all knew it was Israel from the day, moment it happened. I reported that. Everybody else did. We knew the North Korean connection from the start. We knew they were very close to going online. This was shared with the State Department. The U.S. officials knew that, too. And uh, the president, uh, George Bush, knew that. So it wasn't a secret, but for them to release the details of it uh, and to show what a successful strike it was, well, it was clear it wasn't the time because they wiped it out, is clearly a message to Iran, watch out, we're, we're able to do this, we've done, done it with Iraq and Syria now, two countries so far, and you're next if you don't truly disengage your program, truly destroy it which they're not going to do. Well, and again, you and I have always said when they're talking about a preemptive strike on Iran, they're probably not at the time they're going to do it. It's when they're not talking about it. But they're prepared to do that should they need to make that decision, are they not? They are, Jimmy, and it's expected that when uh, President Trump uh, announces he no longer supports the deal at all, basically, yeah, as you said, the appointment of Bolton basically says that as well, then Iran will probably declare war, essentially. And uh, 
the Saudis are preparing for that. I mean, we are on the verge of uh, a real bust-up, Jimmy. Now, it doesn't mean it is going to happen in the next week or, or days. It could be half a year or year two away. But we're heading in that direction, and everybody realizes it. And, uh, you know, it's just Iran's dug in their heels, uh, just as North Korea will probably do as well, uh, wanting to keep their nuclear weapons. Iran doesn't really want to dismantle their program. It has a sunset clause, like I said. It's favorable to them in the long run. And so they're going to be very angry, and we'll see if that's a military response. And we'll stay on top of that story with David Dolan. He's the man who covers the Middle East for us. He's done it as a journalist for over 30 years. He brings much to the table when we have these conversations. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. Our prayers are going to be with you and your family in the home going of your brother. We'll be lifting you up to the Lord. Thank you, my good friend. God bless. Talk again next Thank you, week. Jimmy. God bless you. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to have John Rood at this broadcast table. He's going to talk with us about a European Union update. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. Right after the broadcast, we head over to Newburgh, Indiana. We'll be in that area for a prophecy conference. More information a little bit later on in the program. Well, as promised, we're going to Israel. We're going up to Shiloh, center part of the state, one of the major historic biblical cities of the Jewish state of Israel. And Winky Madad, former mayor, but also brilliantly involved in the media of Israel and the political arena as well. Now, that's some of his background and the reason we always go to Winky. Winky, this last Sunday, uh, there was an election in Russia, Vladimir Putin winning another six-year term as president of Russia. Starting way back in 1999, he took charge when Boris Yeltsin, then the president, resigned and made Vladimir Putin the president of Russia. Long history will not talk so much on what he has done through that period of time, but I want to talk about, I saw an article about the chief rabbi of Moscow having a meeting with Vladimir Putin. Now, we're going to get to the Russians that are in Israel in a moment. But I want to know, from your perspective, how are the Jews living in Russia today? How are they treated by the president, Vladimir Putin? Let's take a step backwards about 200 years, Jimmy. (laughs) 
one of the strongest uh, groups of the Hasidic stream of Judaism is called either Lubavitch or Chabad, depending on what you're talking about, but they're the same type. And they were very strongly connected with Russian elite since the end of the 18th century. Their founder actually was accused by Napoleon's invading forces of acting as a spy. Now, I know this sounds a little bit esoteric for you and I to be discussing this in 2018, but Russia is not a modern Western democratic country. And the history of Jewish orthodoxy in Russia is such that over the past 30, 40 years, the Chabad or Lubavitch Hasidim have been intensively going back into Russia. They were there, of course, during the communist period and then during the breakup. And they've been reinstituting and reestablishing many of their centers of Torah learning and such. And in doing so, they have, of course, been in touch with the Russian bureaucratic senior officials, and it reaches all the way up to Putin. So that's why, Jimmy, you ask me, why does Vladimir Putin every once in a while show up in a meeting with a bearded rabbi with a black hat and black frock coat on? It's strange, but there's a very strong link. Now, whether or not Mr. Putin thinks that Chabad is real, or they have power beyond their means, or he wants to prove that Jews can live in a democratic, according to him, Russia, without suffering any overt anti-Semitism or violence, uh, that is the case. And so now I answer your question. Jews, relatively speaking, have it very well now in Russia over the past two decades or so, both economically, culturally, religiously. There are schools, there are institutions of learning, and many of the old synagogues and stuff have been reestablished. Winky, in 1991, Judy and I came to live in Israel and had a great, great 26 years in the land, now visiting periodically throughout the years. Some of our people are even there, even as I'm speaking, both of my sons on a tour. But also in 1991, it began the time of 1.3 million Russian Jews coming to live in Israel. Now, that being the case, and that's a bit farther back than you just have mentioned. But why did all of these Jews want to leave Russia back in 1991? Jimmy, Russia, uh, until that time and a few years later, was a communist, secular, repressive regime of any religion. And Jews suffered severely. Synagogues were taken from them. They could not engage in circumcision keeping the Sabbath. When I was growing up in the 1960s, the big thing was demonstrating on behalf of Soviet Jewry, not only for their rights inside Russia, but to get them out to be repatriated to Israel, the Jewish homeland, uh, which you mentioned at the beginning of the question, when it finally, it, there was the first break, if you remember, was in, in the early 1970s. For a short while, it clamped down again, and then afterwards it broke open, so much so that Putin has visited Israel, he's visited the Western Wall, he's remarked that the Temple Mount and the Temple belongs to the Jews. We have him on quote on that. He is a very clever, 
strategic politician, and so he wants to make sure that Israel, as much as possible, and Jews are non-interfering as he goes around whatever he is doing. Of course, that then helps us to understand the history. Back in 1991, that was the fall of the Soviet Union, and that's basically what you were talking about. And you had a part in that. Remind us what you did. You were fighting the Soviet Jewry, uh, having to be under this oppression and trying to get them out to Israel, were you not? Uh, Yes, Jimmy, I must admit to my youthful sins. (laughs) (laughs) Demonstrating, sit-downs, uh, breaking up uh, lectures by Soviet diplomats, uh, and in the end, I even spent uh, several days in Moscow meeting with Natan Sharansky, Ida Nudel, and other leading activists at the time, in uh, which we were in contact uh, to, to, to try to plan some demonstrations in coordination. I was followed by KGB agents for a day and a half, consistently, constantly, in a car behind me. We had a little bit of fervor and vision and excitement at that time. I think we persevered. The point is, Jimmy, though, to make clear for our listeners, whether or not there's communism today or not, which there isn't, Putin is a representative of the Russian tradition of, shall we say, less than democratic rule. And so does it make now there is no communism and therefore Judaism can thrive? It doesn't mean, though, that there's complete freedom in Russia, or it cannot turn uh, repressive uh, at the click of a finger, including perhaps assassinating its uh, rivals or other people that they don't like in England and other places. I've heard Vladimir Putin make the statement that the worst time in history was the fall of the Soviet Union. He would like to replace that, put it back in place again. So then, therefore... Is the election of Putin going to be good for Jews, or it, will it revert back to the way it was? No, I don't think at the present moment, uh, I don't think the Jews are in danger in any physical sense or otherwise. I think he really does have, on his level, Jimmy, a very strong outreach to the Jews. Whatever else he does, he wants to make sure that that population is kept relatively or even almost exclusively protected in a certain sense, because that's one of his calling cards to the West. The Soviet communist regime didn't really give too much of a, of a hoot about what the West was thinking. He is a different political character, although his regime is less to be desired than many others. And we know there's extreme poverty in some of the outlying areas of Russia, There is a top-heavy economic class of millionaires. It's not the best thing, but it's a lot different than the ideological Soviet anti-ethical, anti-religious secular communism of those days that you and I remember. So therefore, with more than 1.3 million Russian Jews living in Israel, with Russia with military bases, naval bases up there in Syria, and in complete collaboration with Iran... What would you say the election of Vladimir Putin looks like for the state of Israel today? Again, difficult. I know that our prime minister, Mr. Benjamin Netanyahu, has met Putin several times, and not only met him, but sort of flew over quite quickly within a few days of arranging a meeting in order to make sure that Iran does not 
allow itself to be uh, based in Syria, and I think he's made it very clear to Mr. Putin. Maybe, perhaps, the announcement of Israel this past week, Jimmy, of taking responsibility for bombing the Syrian reactor at the time is perhaps maybe even a warning to Mr. Putin and others. We did this before, we will do it again. I don't know. Maybe that's part of the ongoing quote-unquote Jimmy conversation between Netanyahu and Putin. As you and I know, uh, geopolitics and military strategy can become very, very complicated here. We know Israel had enemies in the north in the past, uh, speaking of the Bible, uh, Assyria, Babylon, and others. They simply change names sometimes, Jimmy. But if we look at the Bible, we place our strength and hope in the divine, in God, and hope that the prophecies will, as then, guide us today. Absolutely. That, of course, would be Ezekiel 38. But chapter 38, verse 18 through chapter 39, verse 6, says that God will always intercede, especially to deal with Russia. It's mentioned there, Magog and Ezekiel 38, too, to make sure the Jewish people will be protected. God's word is absolute. Winky, thank you for taking some time out of your very busy schedule. Appreciate it so much. You give us great insight. And, of course, you had on-the-ground experience to help us understand all of this. Thank you. We'll talk again real soon. Jimmy, thank you for having me, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Very interesting conversation with Winky Madad as it focuses on the re-election of Vladimir Putin there in Russia and the relationship not only to the Jews in Russia, but of course the Jews in the state of Israel as well. Well, let's go to an area, a region of the world. I'm talking about the European Union, and they play a key role as well. Two major superpowers in the end times. They revived the Roman Empire, I believe, coming out of the European Union, and of course, Russia leading the Middle Eastern coalition, that alignment of nations trying to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. The man who looks at the European Union for us lived some 20 years plus in Brussels, Belgium, the headquarters for the European Union. Knows a lot about what's going on. John Rood is his name. And John, I've been talking about how Vladimir Putin's re-election to the leadership of Russia will play a key role in at least setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled And when you talk about two superpowers, the revived Roman Empire and the Russian alignment of nations, you're looking at the tribulation period, a very, very tough time, but it's exactly what Bible prophecy calls for. Now, in light of that, the Russian elections, I do believe, probably lifted up the popularity of Vladimir Putin because they tried to demonize him. And it looks like it was the United States and somewhat the European Union as well. What's your take on that? Well, our insight actually from last week's broadcast was exactly what came to pass. We see that Putin has been re-elected overwhelmingly. In 2012, he was elected 63% of the vote. 2018 was 76% of the vote. So a huge increase. But it appears, as we spoke about the uh, spy poisoning incident, whatever, 
that that was a setup for the for the West to react strong-handedly, and it played into greater turnout and even more popular. The news media in Russia very clearly uh, demonizes the West and makes the connection. The objections of the West work towards the interest of the Russian state, and we see that. Vladimir Putin being in power now for 18 years as president or prime minister. There's ways that that can be done, even though there are some term limitations. He's been elected for the next six years. So we do see, as you've said, that Russia, with the alignment of Middle Eastern nations, and particularly Turkey and Iran, are helping to set up uh, what we see in the scenario uh, for imminent invasion of Israel, Ezekiel 38 war. It, it appears as well even stronger these most recent years because Turkey at one time was not so clear in their alignment, but now they've become quite uh, vocal in taking lots of action in terms of having dictator principles. So we do see these things lining up, and it appears to be a continuation of the uh, objectives of Russia into these next years. Well, you know what's interesting? You bring in Turkey there, and Turkey has had the desire to become a member state in the European Union. European Union leaders have been at arm's length with the Turks. They did not want to bring them in, as the case might be. It would be an open door to bring Muslims into what is the European Union today? Well, there are a lot of them there. That uh, seems to be the case. Turkish military have gone into northern Syria, a friend, and they're there doing pretty much what they wanted to do, get rid of the Kurdish military forces there, or at least shut them down. But while that was going on, Erdogan made the statement, Europe will be Muslim. Now, we know there's a Muslim growth problem, population increase there in the European Union. Would you agree with Erdogan, Europe is ultimately going to become Muslim in the future? Uh, this has been the statement from, from Turkey in recent years, and uh, there's a real centralization of power there right now, and they have encouraged uh, Turkish uh, nationals in Turkey, and as well there's large populations in Europe to populate. And there's actually a plan, apparently, just simply that growing influence is through population. So uh, the Turkish president has, prime minister, has actually made statements in terms of as we increase our numbers, we're in increasing our influence and we're increasing our economics. And uh, this has been the case. The birth rates in Western Europe have, are, have been very low. Some countries, Estonia, are actually in a, ne a negative growth rate. And so, again, it's a bit of a vacuum situation that is allowing um, other nations to uh, propel their interests. So there's a, a great deal of tension now uh, in Western Europe with the interests of Turkey coming into the continent. And it's interesting that the EU essentially offered the entire process for Turkey to become a full-fledged member of the European Union. And then while other countries that were smaller came in quickly, Turkey was always extended year after year, and they began to see that there wasn't a serious interest for Turkey to be a member 
part of it, uh, I would assume, would be uh, the Muslim influence, but also the population would give them a very large uh, representation in the European Parliament. So, the interesting, one time I was in session in the European Union headquarters, and um, it was a closed group, and one of the uh, European uh, members of Parliament sort of pounded the table and said, we have to let Eastern, at this particular time, we have to let these Eastern European nations in, otherwise how can we control them? Very interesting comment that ultimately uh, will be what will play out when you look at these two superpowers in the end times. John Rood with the message giving us insight into what is going on in the European Union. And we took a little sidetrack, but very important today, talking about Turkey's influence in that part of the world as well. John, great report. Thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, sir. You know, that was a very, very interesting conversation with John Rood. He's the man who, for over 20 years, lived in Brussels, Belgium, and now giving us insight into the European Union, a key region as it relates to Bible prophecy. Well, I'm going to bring to the microphones right now another young man who is very, very involved in our tours to Israel, to Turkey, to Jordan, to into, in fact, Rome, which uh, that's where they'll be next week when I catch up with our oldest son, Jim Jr. Do you like that, Jim? A young man? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. 57 is young. That's the new That's the new young. That's the new young when you're talking to your daddy, who is 77. And that's one of the reasons that uh, Jim and Rick are handling our tours. We go to Israel, Judy and I, but uh, these young men have a greater opportunity to show our people around and stay up with the people I'd be following at the back. Well, all of that out of the way, that's family business. What about the tour in Israel? I know you're in Turkey now, but did you have a great tour with the people in Israel? We did. Uh, The last day was fantastic. We went to a new site in Israel. It's not a new one. It was actually the city of David, where King David lived. So it's been there for about uh, almost 3,000 years. But when we went there this time, it was so great to end up our final day. We went through those tunnels. If you remember, Dad, years ago we did television in those tunnels when they just opened them up, and it was David's palace and the tunnels down to the Gihon Spring. It was great to go down there and take some pictures, that Gihon Spring that flows out from underneath the Temple Mount itself. And it was a great day to finish up. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the very key locations as it relates to a walk through the land of the Bible in the nation of Israel, the present day of Israel on its 70th birthday. That was a great addition to your tour there. Well, now you're in Turkey, Asia Minor of biblical times some 2,000 years ago in the days of the apostles of Jesus Christ, who really evangelized that part of the world. In fact, it says in the book of Acts, uh, I think it's chapter 19, verse 10, that the church at Ephesus, where you find yourself today with the tour, in that area, John started to teach and preach. But before that, the apostle Paul had set the foundation, because in Acts 19, it says, the church that Paul started there in Ephesus reached every single person with the gospel message. 
I don't mean they had everybody saved, but they gave the gospel to them so they had an opportunity. You're in Ephesus. It's one of the most magnificent archaeological sites, the remains of what it was right there in Turkey, isn't it? It sure is. You know, we've been to Bashan in Israel. We've been to Jerash in Jordan. Those two sites are pretty good archaeological sites, but when you want to go to almost a complete Roman city that is laid out uh, with the theater, with the library, with the streets, the colonnades, uh, the cardo, everything. This is one of the most uncovered archaeological sites in the world. You know, I enjoy so much that spot. Do you, you walk from the top down, which is always better for me, but I remember the time we were there covering that uh, that unbelievable edifice that uh, the man who actually began the, Cre- the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, built. And uh, that's beautiful, too. A, a lot of activities during the times of the apostles, especially Paul, took place uh, there in that uh, Colosseum. Is that what you would call it, Jim? <laughs> well, we sometimes we trick our, our tourists, to uh, our followers with us, our passengers, to call it an amphitheater. But, uh, yes, it is a theater. It's a Colosseum. Absolutely. Well, you're going to see another of those when you get to Rome next week as well. Jim, I happen to believe that the seven messages that Jesus Christ told John to deliver to the seven churches of Asia Minor are so key, not only at that time in history, but for the church today. Would you agree? I agree, Dad. John received those messages 95 AD. That was a time period when those churches were alive. He delivered and hand-carried those messages, the last words of Jesus Christ to the body of Christ, to the church. And as John carried those messages, each one commending and condemning, they, they had qualities that were, uh, that were favorable in the eyes of Jesus Christ, and there were some of the churches that were condemned for how they operated. And those churches that were alive back then have been alive throughout church history and, and are alive today. It really is important for us to understand how we are to be and what God wants to see in our lives and in the life of the church. So applicable today, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. You also took a quick visit of Istanbul, did you not? A unique city today. It used to be Constantinople, was it not? Yes, sir. That's where Constantine established the eastern realm of the Roman Empire and the, the Church during his time period. And today it's, uh, it's a mixture. It's right there on the Bosphorus. You've got a mixture of Asia and Europe, and you get to see the, really the, the structure of Hagia Sophia, the big church, the Blue Mosque. So much is there, the bazaar. Um, the shopping bazaar, that is, where the old shook, I guess uh, some people would know them as, that you can walk through and still get the flavor of the Turkish atmosphere today. And, of course, today when you're thinking about the Turkish atmosphere, you have to be reminded that Turkey is a Muslim nation. Ninety-seven percent, I believe, is Muslim. They call it a secular Islam. I'm not quite sure what that means. But Tayyip Erdogan has a special vision. He wants to make it the leader of the Islamic world, and he to be uh, a revival of the Ottoman Empire when they controlled all of the Middle East, and ultimately he'd like to control the world, wouldn't he? 
You would. The Turks are a very proud people, and uh, as they fight for their identity in this situation, we do know through Bible prophecy the nations of Gomer, Tagarma, Meshach, and Tubal, those countries that are modern-day Turkey, as they will come against Israel in the last days. It's interesting to see, as they are struggling now for their identity, how it's going to be molded for them to be pulled to the nation of Israel in the future. And folks, that is the reason we take in, when we go to Israel, we take the side trip to go over to Turkey, and the boys, Jim Jr. and Rick, take them to all of the seven locations of the seven churches and teach about Turkey today as well. Well, I guess next week you're off to Rome. I can't wait to talk to you there. That's a unique city and a very key component of Bible prophecy also, isn't it? Oh, for sure. The headquarters for the Antichrist will be there in the city of Rome, and that's the location where he establishes and gives power and strength to the false prophet and sets up the false church. Folks, you can come and go along with Jim Jr., Rick, or myself as we are in the land of the Bible, not only Israel, but Turkey and Jordan and into Rome. It's not a Middle Eastern nation, but it's key in understanding Bible prophecy. Go to our website, prophecytoday.com. Go to Joshua Travel. You can find out. I think we have six more tours this year. You can come and join us. Hey, Jim, be safe as you travel. Greetings to everybody. We'll talk again next week when you're in Rome. All right, Dad. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I've got one more broadcast partner. That's David James. We're going to be talking about abortion. You do not want to miss it. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Always, we ask you for 90 minutes. We've got 30 of those minutes left to inform you. We're going to have a conversation with David James, my weekly conversation. It'll be focused on the abortion issue. That's blasphemy against God if you understand God's word, killing an individual who has life. Well, we'll get into that discussion with David in just a moment. You want to stick around for that. My poll question can be found on my website, that website address, prophecytoday.com. On the left-hand column of the home page, scroll down, and you'll find my poll question. Hope you will answer it, respond to it if you will. Here's the poll question. As we look at our world today, political leaders are making political decisions that set in place what is going to happen in the future as related to us from the prophetic passages of God's Word. Revelation chapter 17, verse 17, says that God will use political leaders making political decisions to fulfill His will. As you look at these political decisions by those political leaders, do you believe that that verse, Revelation 17, 17, is absolutely correct? And that is my poll question. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com, the home page on the left-hand column. That's where you'll find it. In fact, on that home page, there's a banner up top talking about our School of Prophets conference that's going to be here in Chattanooga the last three days of May. David James will join us teaching an introduction to Islam, looking at how important it is that the body of Christ understand Islam. 
and then I'll be starting a journey through the entire Bible, all 66 books of the Bible, and showing you how each and every one of them contain Bible prophecy. We'll do a third of it this next time. That's the end of May, the School of Prophets Conference here in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And remember, we're at Gateway Baptist Church for Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. That's Newburgh, Indiana. Morgan Flagler, the pastor there, invites all of you to come join us for this prophecy conference. We now bring to these microphones David James. That's right. You check the clock. It's the time for our weekly conversation. Today, we're going to be talking about a Christianity Today article entitled, Free Speech and Abortion, They Collide. Well, this week, as I just mentioned, David, Christianity Today posted an article about a Supreme Court case that could be one of the most important cases that the Supreme Court will rule on this year. Well, that's right. In the article in Christianity Today, they noted that this week the Supreme Court would begin hearing arguments, and the case is called the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra, and this is a case related to something that's going on in the state of California, and it has to do with crisis pregnancy centers being forced to post advertising concerning other options concerning pregnancy. For example, crisis pregnancy centers exist for the purpose of giving women the opportunity to consider options besides abortion. Based upon a law in California, they would be required to post information concerning abortion providers, which would go against exactly what they are trying to support. And so the argument was presented to the Supreme Court on the basis of religious freedom and free speech, and Supreme Court only allowed the free speech argument to be put into place. So this is really a, quite a big deal and could have impact across the state of California. It sounds like this could indeed have far-reaching implications if the state of California should prevail in this case. Well, that's right, because decisions that are made at the Supreme Court level affect law across the United States, and the idea is that they set precedent, and that's always the basis for legal decisions in our courts, from the local courts up through federal courts and then up to the Supreme Court. They, they make rulings based upon precedent. And so every court relies upon precedents that are set by other courts, and especially when it's set by the Supreme Court, then that sets a a national precedent, and all other cases are judged against that. So even thinking about here locally at home, our home church is in Paris, Illinois, which is a small community of about 9,000 people, and we are heavily involved with a crisis pregnancy center. In fact, one of the ladies in our church adopted a girl who is now in her late teens as a result of uh, actually her mother giving her up for adoption rather than being aborted. And so she has a, a great ministry there in that crisis pregnancy center, and we support that. And it, it's a tremendous ministry to young women, and this would be the case all across the United States, that if 
crisis pregnancy centers are, are required to present abortion as a viable option, that completely undermines the whole purpose of these centers in the first place. David, let's uh, think back a bit and talk about the 1973 Supreme Court ruling in Roe versus Wade and what this has meant over these last 45 years in terms of babies who have actually lost their lives. Well, it's true. I mean, we're looking at, as you said, the last 45 years, there are millions and millions, untold millions of babies who have lost their lives. And we, as a society, as a free society, value life, and we go to great lengths to make sure, for example, that those who are even committed of crimes, that they do not lose their lives through a death penalty frivolously. We go to great lengths to do that. And yet when it comes to those who don't have a voice, that would be the unborn. We, for some reason as a society, seem to be willing to take those lives indiscriminately. You know, a little over a year ago, we had a discussion about the Jane Roe of Roe versus Wade, and it was that week that Norma McCorvey died, and many probably did not realize some of the surprising facts about this lady and the case itself. Well, that's right. And of course, that was the precedent-setting decision by the Supreme Court. And the fact is, Norma McCorvey actually never had an abortion. And what happened was there were a couple of lawyers who were looking to challenge the state of Texas on this matter of uh, abortion. And so they took this 21-year-old mother of one and who was also pregnant with a second child. And basically, I would say that they simply used her to set their agenda and to reinforce what they were trying to do to get laws changed. And so Norma McCorvey never had an abortion. She had two children. They were given up for adoption. And actually, in later years, for the last two decades of her life, she actually had joined the pro-life battle and spoke out strongly, even against the very decision by the Supreme Court that she was involved with. You know, David, from a biblical perspective, when would you say that life actually begins? Well, I think it comes down to the very theological issue of when does the soul come into existence? Now, we would believe that not only are we conceived physically by our parents, but we are conceived body, soul, and spirit by our parents. This would be in contrast to the Roman Catholic position, which says that we are conceived only physically by our parents, and God creates a soul and places it in the body. That would be the Roman Catholic view, but we would understand that we are conceived body, soul, and spirit at the time of conception. So what that would mean, then, is even the fertilized egg, uh, a soul has come into existence, then that necessarily makes it the point at which life begins, because death is when the soul separates from the body, and if you abort a fetus, then you are killing the physical part of that person, but their soul will continue to exist forever, and, and the soul would separate from the body. So I think theologically it's very, very clear 
that at the moment of conception, uh, life begins. And if you think even about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which I think is one of the most important things, is that at the moment that the Holy Spirit overshadowed his mother Mary, that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, entered into the womb of Mary and joined physically to what would be his human body, so that his human life began at that very moment of conception. And I think that is perhaps one of the strongest arguments for life beginning actually at the moment of conception. You know, although we're primarily concerned about what the Bible has to say on the matter, I think it would be fair to say that science and medicine would also support the idea that life begins at conception. Am I wrong? Well, no, I think you're exactly right. If you think about, uh, for example, the idea of late-term abortions, and we'll just start backing up a little bit, everyone, or at least a large majority of people in the United States, believe that uh, late-term abortions are wrong. So that means that people are are very clear on the matter that at least by the the sixth month, the the baby is actually a person because a late-term abortion would be murder. Now, what we have seen as uh, science and medicine have developed over the years, the viability of a baby who is born prematurely, that age has dropped dramatically. So now we're down into the 30-week range even, and sometimes in rare cases before that. And I would contend that given the fact that we now have in vitro fertilization and we have viability going back further and further, I don't know where science is going, but I would suggest that there is a possibility that a baby could be conceived of the egg fertilized and carried all the way to term, even possibly outside the mother's body. And that begs the question then, at, at what point does life begin? And even if we consider the fact that the baby is in the mother's body, the baby has a separate heart, a separate mind, a separate blood system, even different DNA than the mother. So it's completely wrong to say that that fetus or that unborn child is simply another part of the mother's body and simply another organ or tissue that could be removed at the will of the mother for convenience sake or for for any other reason. So logically, science and medicine would have to place life beginning at conception. You know, David, I'm sure that for the vast majority of our listeners, we're preaching to the choir. But I do think that it's helpful for each and every one of us all to be reminded of these things, because this affects both the way we vote and, in fact, our conversations that we might have with our family and friends. Well, that's right, and I think that sometimes we're not thinking through things clearly. One of the things I tell uh, my students around the world is sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do is to think logically. The Lord has given us a mind. He has given us His Word. Uh, He has given us His Holy Spirit, and I think it's very important that believers come to settled convictions about these things. Sometimes we get into deep theological discussions, but I think it's very important that we develop convictions and we grow in our understanding of the Lord and His Word and these various theological topics, because they ultimately do impact every area of our, our life, and it affects the way we interact and minister to family 
and friends, and we can have very good conversations that actually might even save the life of an unborn child. So this is a very important topic. Yes, absolutely. And you said a very important phrase, I believe. We must develop convictions based upon the Word of God. I like that. That's the epitome of why we study God's Word. David, thank you so much. A very important conversation. In fact, uh, I think it was much needed. Glad you brought this to my attention. And like this issue we've discussed today, we'll have another one next week. Thank you so much. Great to be with you again. Very important conversation with David James. You may want to re-listen to it. Go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to Prophecy Today Radio Network, PTRN, and you can not only listen to the conversation I had with David, but all of my other broadcast partners as well. I'm going to have to take a break right now, and when we come back, I'm going to take a look at the book. We'll consider everything we've talked about with our broadcast partners and take a look at the book. It's all ahead here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. On Prophecy Today weekend, 
our broadcast partners came to this broadcast table with a focus on the political activities of this world today. For example, we talked about the Putin re-election, the Trump decision to appoint John Bolton as his national security advisor, and much, much more. In fact, everything we talk about is basically politics setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Now that's going to be our focus as we take a look at the book, Politicians Making Political Decisions, Setting in Play the Prophetic Scenario That's Found in God's Word. Just before we do that, let me rehearse for you the focus of all of our broadcast partners. We went to Sweden to talk with Ken Timmerman. He talked about the Bolton appointment as it relates to Russia, Iran, Syria, North Korea, and Israel. Then we had a Middle East news update from David Dolan. David brought to our attention the Chancellor of Germany said an end to the Iranian nuclear deal would lead to war. Winky Madad gave us insight into the Jewish community in Israel that comes from Russia, over one and a half million of these Russian Jews now living in the state of Israel. We've read the last chapter on that story as well. We'll bring that to your attention in just a moment. The man who covers the European Union for us, his name is John Rood. He gave us the information about the Western demonization of Vladimir Putin, actually made Vladimir Putin more powerful and more popular there in Russia, which helped to have his re-election come about. We changed our whole focus, and we went to Turkey, where Jim Jr., his brother Rick, are leading our tour through Turkey, going to the seven churches, as recorded there in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. A great opportunity for the tour group to be in Turkey. Jim brought to our attention the attitude of the Turkish president, Tayyip Erdogan, who wants to be the pan-Islamic leader of the world, making many political decisions to bring that about. Now, all of these reports from our broadcast partners can be heard at prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. You'll be able to listen to each and every one of the conversations with my broadcast partner. And be sure to pass this information along to a friend. They need to hear what our broadcast partners have to say as well. Now, let's take a moment and focus on politicians making political decisions to set prophecy in place. Before looking at certain political decisions and politics around the world, let me remind you that God brought human government into existence. It's Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. That was 4,500 years ago after the flood. In chapter 10, God brings nations into existence, but just prior to that, he put in place human government for him to be able to lead mankind in the direction he wanted them to go. That has been the case throughout history. God has used human government, many examples of it. One, for example, would be Second Chronicles chapter 36, 
When the Babylonians come in under Nebuchadnezzar, destroy the temple, devastate the city, and take the Jews into the Babylonian captivity. And by the way, that was to fulfill prophecy in the last part of chapter 36 of Second Chronicles. The Lord says, I did this with Nebuchadnezzar to fulfill the prophecy that Jeremiah had said, because the Jews did not rest the land, I'll take them out of that land for a 70-year period of time. You see, God using human government to accomplish his will in the past, but he's going to do it in the future. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 17 reveals to us that, and that passage of Scripture would be during the seven-year tribulation period, it's during that time that God will put in the hearts of political leaders to accomplish his will. Now that's chapter 17, verse 17 of the book of Revelation. Read that verse sometime and recognize how powerful it is. Let me give you some tangible evidence of how this is even happening today. Politicians making political decisions to set prophecy in place. For example, let's go to Russia. It's key in the end times. It is one of the two superpowers. The other one would be the revived Roman Empire. Now, we would think that the revived Roman Empire has its infrastructure in place. That would be the European Union, 28 member states making political decisions to gel this as an empire, the revived Roman Empire, and then the Russian leadership putting together a coalition of Middle Eastern nations that will come to try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. Two superpowers making political decisions to accomplish God's will. Remember, Russia leads that coalition, Ezekiel 38, to try to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Russia today in Syria, that's where Iran is, and that's part of the scenario that is found in Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40, when it mentions the king of the north, that's modern-day Syria, They'll be the first nation to attack the Jewish state of Israel, followed by the other nations aligned against this Jewish state. John Bolton is a very close friend of the Jewish people, uh, but he's very suspicious of the others that are in that scenario. He understands Russia is strong. He knows that the United States must deal with them. Iran is part of that alignment, verse 5, where they're mentioned as Persia. Uh, that was their name until 1936. Uh, but Iran is one of those alignment of the nations. Again, I said that Syria will be the first nation to attack the Jewish state. That's Daniel 11, verse 40. And then when you think about North Korea and the advice that John Bolton will be giving to the president, you've got to recognize the fact that North Korea, in Bible prophecy, would be those nations listed as the kings of the East, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. Understanding what we've just said to you, my good friend, will help you to recognize that politicians will make political decisions to set prophecy in play. And all decisions will lead through what the Lord is going to do. Politicians make the decisions today, but at the time of the rapture of the church, that's God's decision to take this church out of this world before the world explodes in the tribulation period. And by the way, that rapture could happen at any moment. Having said that, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... 
Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.